Well, there was a man, he was backing his car out of a crowded parking lot when he accidentally hit the car behind him. He got out, he surveyed the damage, he looked around. Not seeing the owner of the car, he took out a piece of paper and scribbled down a note. Then he stuck it back on the windshield. Well, the people in the parking lot who witnessed the accident admired this man for his apparent honesty and his integrity. When the owner of the car discovered the damage, he looked for a note. Sure enough, he saw the piece of paper on the windshield and he opened it up. He read it and this is what it said. I have just smashed your car. The people who saw the accident are watching me. They think I'm writing down my name and address. I am not. Good luck. The man who appeared noble had led the onlookers to believe that he was something he was not. His actions said one thing, but his attitude said another. A fitting title for the first chapter of Malachi would be the anatomy of a hypocrite. In this chapter, Malachi takes a spiritual scalpel and he dissects the heart of a hypocrite. The scripture is sharper than a double-edged sword. It's able to cut between soul and spirit. The truth of God exposes the lies of men. The Bible differentiates between the factual and the phony, the genuine from the jip, the bona fide from the bogus, the candid from the counterfeit. You remember Jesus saved his harshest words, his sternest warnings, not for the blatant sinner, but for the bogus saint. The Pharisees were the hypocrites of Jesus' day. They were outwardly righteous, but inwardly rotten. And Jesus didn't mince words. You remember, he called them blind guides. They were leading folks down a path that they themselves had never traveled. He called them other unflattering terms like snakes and sons of hell. The plight of the hypocrite is hidden only from his own eyes. When archaeologist Howard Carter discovered King Tut's ancient tomb, he found the body of the former Pharaoh in an elaborately decorated casket. When the first casket was opened, he found another casket. When the second casket was opened, he found a third. When the third casket was opened, he found a fourth. And all four caskets were made of solid gold. When he finally got to the corpse, it was wrapped in a gold cloth. And it was hidden behind a gold mask. But when the shroud was removed, the body was leathery. It was shriveled. It was ugly. And this illustrates the life of a hypocrite, gold-plated carnality, clean on the outside, but corrupt on the inside. It's been said a hypocrite is like a straight pin, pointed in one direction, but headed in another. Like the Greek word which, from which it comes, the hypocritus is an actor. The hypocritus was a stage performer who played a role hidden behind a mask. A hypocrite plays a part rather than being himself. And Malachi delivers the same strong message as did Jesus. In a nutshell, he says, in the masquerade. If you're living a sham, this Hebrew prophet gives you reason to squirm. Malachi will shoot straight for the heart. Now understand, far be it from me 
call anyone a hypocrite. But I think if we were all honest with ourselves, we'd have to admit that there is a little bit of baloney in all of us. Would you agree? Maybe. There are times where I'm not what other people think I am. There are times when I am not what I know I should be. There are certainly times when I'm not what I want to be. And yet I often give off airs of being something that I'm not. It sounds disgusting, doesn't it? Well, it is. Tonight we need to let Malachi put the knife to our life. We need to let him dissect the hypocrisy in us because there is a little bit in all of us. God knows we'll never be perfect, but at least we should be honest. Before we jump into the chapter, let me outline, outline for you so you'll know where we're headed. The entire book of Malachi is structured around a number of verbal exchanges between God and His people. Three issues are addressed in chapter 1. In verse 2, the people have denied God's love. In verse 6, they have despised God's name. And in verse 7, they have defiled God's altar. And they've defiled the altar in at least three ways. In what they brought to the altar, verse 8. And why they came to the altar, verse 10. And in the way they behaved at the altar, verse 13. Let's jump into the book of Malachi. It begins... The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now the Jews that had returned from exile in Babylon didn't do so all at once. Three waves of immigration took place over a period of about 90 years. The first Jews returned in 536 B.C. on the hills of Babylon's fall to the Persians. They were led by a man named Zerubbabel. Along with the help of other prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, Zerubbabel brought certain Jewish patriots home from Babylon, and together they rebuilt the temple. The second homecoming of Jews didn't occur for another 78 years. In 458 B.C., a small contingency of Jews, about 1,700, returned under the leadership of a priest named Ezra. Ezra was instrumental in reestablishing the authority of the Scriptures and the role of the priesthood in this new post-exile Judah. You see, Zerubbabel, he worked on the temple. Ezra built up the people, but it was Nehemiah who reconstructed the walls. And the third wave of immigration took place under Nehemiah in 444 B.C. Another Persian king, Artaxerxes Longimanus, commissioned a Jew named Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem to rebuild and refortify the city's walls. With a sword in one hand and with a shovel in the other hand, both building and battling, Nehemiah was successful in his mission to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Twelve years after Nehemiah left Persia, he returned to Artaxerxes to report on the progress of the work. Yet you've heard the old saying, while the... While the mouse is away, or I'm sorry, while the cat is away, the mice will play. You heard that saying? While the cat's away, the mice will play. Well, Nehemiah was in Persia. While he was in Persia, the Jews in Jerusalem were acting like Persians. They were ignoring God. They were neglecting the temple. They were forgetting the scriptures. 
These people had come back to God's land, but they had turned their backs on God himself. Nehemiah eventually came back and served a second term as governor. But during the year that he was absent, God raised up a prophet, a man named Malachi, to minister in Nehemiah's absence and to pave the way for the governor's return and for the reforms that he would initiate to deal with the people's sin. Malachi returned while Nehemiah was gone, or Malachi rose up while Nehemiah was gone, and he called the people to repentance. In fact, Malachi told these Jews, verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Now here is God's first beef with his people. They deny his love. God says he loves them, but they question his love. Understand, any backsliding always causes a blindness. Sin is said to be the smog of the soul. It causes a haze. Truths that were once crystal clear to us now become barely recognizable, especially God's love. In order for the hypocrite to harden his heart, he first has to deny God's love. The reason for that should be obvious, because the love of God is so enchanting, so compelling, so engrossing, so disarming, so captivating, it feels so good, it heals so deep, it lasts so long, it grows so sweet. In light of the love of God, it is impossible to harden our hearts. We can't harden our hearts in the face of God's love. This is why we have to deny God's love in order to callous our hearts. Listen to this point. And take note of the hold that the love of God can have on a person's heart. Oh, the bitter pain and sorrow that a time could ever be when I proudly said to Jesus, all of self and none of thee. Yet he found me. I beheld him bleeding on the accursed tree. And my wistful heart said faintly, hey, some of self and some of thee. Day by day, his tender mercy, healing, helping, full and free, brought me lower while I whispered, less of self and more of thee. Higher than the highest heavens, deeper than the deepest sea, Lord, thy love at last has conquered none of self in all of thee. God's great love draws us in. It keeps seeking us and searching for us. It keeps changing us and working on us. The more we're aware of his love, the more that love endears us to God. This is why the first step toward hypocrisy is to harden your heart to the love of God. See, it's easier to keep God at arm's length if you dismiss His love for you. And the religious hypocrite, he replaces the love of God with rituals or with rules or with remembrances or with recitals of creeds and doctrines. He or she has substituted the things of God for the touch of God. This creates a loveless religion. Rituals can remind us of the majesty of God. Rules can communicate to us the righteousness of God. Remembrances and recollections can shine a light on the faithfulness of God. And the reciting of creeds and doctrines can reveal the wisdom of God. But to know the love of God, it takes the touch of God. This is why the hypocrite keeps religious things between him and God. He keeps God at a distance in subtle ways. 
And yet God is undaunted by the rejection of His people. Even though these people have denied God's love, in these verses He proves His love for Israel by pointing to both the roots and the fruits of His love. In fact, He takes them back to the roots, to the founding of their nation and their forefather Jacob. He asks, Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. The Jews have questioned God's love for them, but God reminds them that he loved them from the beginning. In fact, he chose them over Esau. Now understand the original language. The text isn't saying that God literally hated Jacob's brother Esau. The Hebrew expressions are always not always meant to be taken literally. Oftentimes, the Hebrew language employs hyperbole and exaggeration. And this is a good example here. Another good example is in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. There Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, obviously, we all should recognize that Jesus isn't intending to be taken literally in those verses. To hate our family members would be to contradict other scriptures that teach just the opposite. No, Jesus is using a figure of speech. He's trying to say that our love for our family, though it's strong, our love for him should be very much more. God certainly loved Esau, but he loved Jacob in a different way, a more intense way. He chose Jacob to be the recipient of a love that entitled Jacob to special blessings and certain status. God loved Esau, but his love for Jacob made his love for his brother Esau look like hate. And so the question arises here, why did God choose Jacob over Esau? Only God knows for sure. Who knows the mysteries of God's sovereign? In amazing grace. A thoughtful man once approached Bible teacher Griffith Thomas with a problem. He was perplexed by this passage. He come, came to him and he said, the Bible says God hates Esau. What gives here? Griffith Thomas responded, well, I've got a problem harder than that. The Bible also says God loves Jacob. You know, it's not hard to see why God would hate a sinner like Esau or any sinner for that matter. We've rebelled against him. We've put our fist in his face. We've spit on things that are sacred. But why in the world would God love a sinner like Jacob or any other sinner for that matter? This is the real mystery. Jacob didn't deserve God's love. He was a thief. He was a liar. He was a manipulator. And yet God chose him anyway. God loved Jacob. A mystery indeed. And here's another mystery. God loves you. God has chosen you. I don't understand it. <laughs> it baffles me. But if you're in Christ, you've been chosen by God. You don't deserve it, but God loves you. And He's granted you grace. He's given you special status. He's given you spiritual privilege. He's given you tons and tons of blessing. He has taken the initiative with no reason from you. 
The only thing that hinders us from receiving God's blessing is if we ignore His love. That's why we need to embrace His grace. We need to stop questioning and denying His love for us. Verse 4 says, Even though Edom has said, We have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, They may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see, and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. Now the Edomites, these were the descendants of Esau. And they became perpetual enemies of Jacob or Judah. Over the centuries, God judged the Edomites for their idolatry and for their hostility toward the Jews. Edom was conquered in the 6th century BC by the Babylonians. Again, they were conquered in the 5th century by the Nabataean Arabs. In the 4th century, they were conquered by the Greeks. In the 2nd century, they were conquered by the Maccabean Jews. By the 3rd century AD, according to the early church father Origen, the Edomites had ceased to exist as a distinct people. We'll learn more about God's judgment on the Edomites when we study that little bitty book called Obadiah. But here, Malachi's point is that God judged the Edomites without giving them a second chance to rise up and rebuild their nation. Edom said, we will return, but God refused to bless their efforts. At the same time, the Jews were upset that God had judged them. They moaned, oh, God doesn't love us. They were questioning God's love, but that wasn't the case at all. And here's Malachi's point. His love was demonstrated to the Jews in their opportunity to start over. I hope you know this is how God demonstrates His love to us. Not that He doesn't judge us. Sometimes we need to be judged. We need to be stopped. But God's love is demonstrated in that He gives us a chance to start over. We often say that God is not only the God of the second chance, but the third chance, and the fourth chance, and the fifth chance, and another chance. Jesus told us to forgive our brother not just seven times, but you remember what he said? Seven times 70, or in essence, an infinite number of times. And if that's what he asks of us, we can safely assume that Jesus practices what he preaches. He's willing to forgive us an infinite number of times. He always allows those he loves to start over. And yet, don't take God's love for granted. That's what he's saying. Recognize the mercy he shows. Don't ignore the grace He offers. God loved His people, and He'd gone out of His way over and over to show the Jews His compassion. Now it is breaking His heart for His people to question and to doubt His love. You know, nothing is more frustrating than to give and give and serve and help someone only to have them still doubt and still be skeptical of your love. I'll give you an example. You give and give, and give to that child of yours. And then one day you say no for their own sake, and they start whining, you don't really love me. Doesn't that just irritate you? Yeah, that's how God feels about His kids. The Jews were saying the same about Him. You don't love me. It was frustrating. Their belly aching had given God a belly full. Verse 6, a son honors his father, 
and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts to you priests who despise my name. Here's God's second beef with the Jews. The priests despised his name. They ridiculed God's name. Remember, it was God's name that he revealed on Mount Sinai. And when he did, he revealed through his name his nature. In Exodus 34, there on top of the mountain, we're told the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And how did God proclaim his name? We're told it was by giving to Moses a list of attributes. The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth. God's name revealed his nature. In Numbers chapter 6, verse 27, after giving to Moses the priestly blessing, the Lord said, So they shall put my name on the children of Israel. The people of God were to wear his name. As a bride takes the name of her husband as an example of their unity and their oneness, so the people of Israel were to share in God's name, both in title and in substance. Yet this was the problem. The Jews laid claim to God's name, but they ignored God's nature. Once I was watching the news show 60 Minutes, and a story was reported on a pathological liar who happened to be pretending to be the son of the movie star Sidney Poitier. This man put on quite a charade. The report went on to describe how that for months he fooled almost everyone in Hollywood. Under his alien, alias, he hobnobbed with the jet set before he was finally exposed. This is the ultimate hypocrite. He professed what he didn't possess. He claimed a name, but his claims were bogus. A.W. Tozer once wrote this, We settle for words because deeds are too costly. Think about that. We settle for words because deeds are too costly. This was the Jews. This was a microcosm of their attitude. They liked their rank, but not their relationship. They liked being the people of God, but they didn't want a relationship with God. They had a name, but that was it. They didn't have the relationship to support it and to back it up. This is why God says to them, you claim you're my son, but why don't you honor me as a father? You claim you're my servant, but why don't you treat me like a master? They weren't living up to the claims they were making. There was no substance to their statements. Once we read of a private who knocked on the office of a newly appointed uh, colonel in army. This colonel, he, he was a new, newly appointed Colonel, and so he wanted to appear busy. He wanted to be important. And so he picked up the phone as the young private walked into the room, and he faked a conversation. He said, yes, sir, general. I'll call the president this afternoon. No, sir, I won't forget. He put the phone down, and he turned to the private, and he said, how can I help you, sir, young man? The private replied sheepishly, sir, I'm here to connect your phone. 
the colonel was pretending, feigning a relationship he really didn't have. And I wonder how many people in the church are doing that same thing. Pretending to have a relationship, saying they have a relationship with God that really doesn't exist. Jesus told us some would claim a relationship they didn't possess. In Luke chapter 6, verse 46, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? In reality, you despise God's name when you resist His Lordship. You see, Lord is a title, and a title implies a relationship. If God is my Lord, then I am His servant. All too often, we settle for a portion of God and allow Him only a portion of us. This doesn't get us very far. Again, it's Tozer who wrote, It's not that people don't want God. It's that people have things they want more than God. We are determined to have what we want most. And I have to ask you, what is it that you want most? Here's a thought-provoking poem. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a black man or pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Have you settled for $3 worth of God? Just enough to carry around in a paper sack, but not enough to transform your life and change your heart? God doesn't come in bite-sized portions, minute quantities. God only comes in bulk. If you want the living God, you've got to want all there is of God. I think one of the most amazing facts of human anatomy is that a person can't smell his or her own B.O. Did you know that? If you've got body odor tonight, if you stink, you're probably going to be the last person to know it. You could be suffering right now from a terrible case of halitosis and you'd be the last one to realize it. It's kind of scary, isn't it? Maybe if you're sitting by yourself tonight, maybe that's one of the reasons why. I mean, you kind of check yourself out a little bit later. And likewise, likewise, our hearts can stink. They can, they can reek. And we can be immune to the smell. We should all ask God tonight to crack the door of our hearts open and give us a whiff of what's inside. The Jews in Malachi's day had despised God's name because they had no desire for His nature. At the end of verse 6, the priest asked God, Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? And in verse 7, he answers them, You have off, you offered defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And here's God's third beef with His people. They defiled His altar. In essence, they watered down their worship. 
They stopped taking their service to God seriously. They made a mockery of ministry. These priests were going through the motions without any of the devotion. Religion had become rote and routine. These priests called it religion still, but the word rut would have been a better term. You know, it's been said of our society. We worship our work. We work at our play, and we play at our worship. We worship our work, we work at our play, but we play at our worship. Few people today really take seriously what they really believe. Too much of what Christians do today is a game that's played to make them feel good, but that accomplishes very little. It surely falls short of pleasing the heart of God. Are we content to do just what's convenient for us, or are we willing to do what satisfies God? The Jews, especially their priests, were defiling God's altar in three ways. In what they brought, in why they came, and in how they behaved once they were there. Verse 8 says, And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? But now you entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us while this is being done by your hands. Will he accept you favorably, said the Lord of hosts? The Jews were defiling God's altar by bringing him their leftovers. What was costing them nothing. In Deuteronomy 15 verse 21, the Jews were told, But if there is any defect in it, if it is lame or blind or has any serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord. When a sacrifice was offered to God, it was to be the best of the herd. And yet here the Jews of Malachi's day were bringing the lame lambs. The crippled cows, just the, gouts, the goats with a little gout. That's what they were bringing. They were bringing to God their throwaways, not their best. These beasts were going to die soon anyway. They were of no use now, so why not give them to God? That was their attitude, and it was inexcusable. In verse 13, we're told that some of the people had become so calloused that they were even trying to offer stolen sacrifices to God. Steal the sacrifice and then offer it to God. In other words, they were treating God the Father as if he was a fence. They were using the temple worship to launder their stolen goods. How dare them? This was an abomination. In verse 8, Malachi reprimands them. They wouldn't offer a hated Persian governor what they were offering God. And what about us? If we were called to a meeting with Nathan Deal, I mean, would we give him more consideration than we've given God this past week? Here's the question. Have you been giving God your leftovers? You're sick and lame and stolen and blind. Malachi mentions the sick sacrifice. This is what can't be saved. You can't take it back if it's sick. You can't fix it if it's sick. You're going to throw it away anyway, so why not just give it to God? 
Donate it to the church. At least get a tax deduction out of it. Is that your attitude? The lame sacrifice is that which will never be strong again. You're going to have to replace it with something better anyway, so why not just make room and dump it on God? You can't show off the stolen sacrifice or you'll be discovered. This isn't something that will ever enhance your image or make you famous, so why not just give it to God, the stolen sacrifice? And then the blind sacrifice will always be a hassle. It'll be a bother to you. It's going to require extra effort its whole life. So again, why don't we just dump that on God? It's a sin to give to God what can't be fixed or that will never be strong or that really doesn't belong to you or is a hassle to you in the first place and then call it a sacrifice. Hey, you can give your hand-me-downs to the Salvation Army or to the Goodwill or even to the church. That's fine. But just don't call it a sacrifice for God. God is never pleased with our table scraps. See, here's where we need to take inventory. Are we giving God our crumbs? Hey, are you just giving God your crumbs or are you giving God your best? After we've poured over the newspaper and relaxed with that novel and wasted the evening channel surfing the TV, then we try to pick up our Bible and get something out of it. When our concentration is shot and we no longer have any energy left, no wonder we're not getting anything out of our Bible study. When it comes to our involvement at church, are we giving God our crumbs? Well, if nothing's on TV, if I got nowhere else to go, if it's not raining, yeah, I'll be at church. When it comes to our minds, do we give God the crumbs? The last meager tidbits of our concentration after we spend it on everything else all day. When it comes to our talents, do we give Him the crumbs? After you've exhausted your creative energies trying to make a buck, then you give God what's left. When it comes to our money, do we give God our crumbs? I mean, you might think nothing of dropping a hundred bucks on two tickets to a concert or to a game, but you slip God a $5 bill on Sunday and think you're making a sacrifice. Don't call it tithing. It's more like tipping. And it's not even a respectable tip at that. After eating fish and lamb and stuff like that, and salad in Israel for two weeks, Monday night, Kathy and I went to Longhorns for a steak. We're good Gentiles, man. We wanted a steak with some bacon somewhere nearby. Afterwards, I got the bill. And you know how the bill lists the suggested tips? You know how it does that? It gave me what would be a 20% tip, what would be a 15% tip, uh, an 18% tip, and then what would be a 15% tip. And then it hit me. I noticed for the first time, a 10% tip wasn't even listed. 20, 18, 15. 10% wasn't even on the list. Apparently, a 10% tip is no longer considered acceptable, respectable. And yet for the last 2,000 years, all God has asked for is just 10%. His suggested tip hasn't changed. It hasn't gone up. And yet most Christians can't even manage the bare minimum. It's shocking 
But I read recently that the average Christian loses more cash every year than he or she gives to God. Just loses it. We spend more money in this country on pet food than on foreign missions. We can watch a ball game. We can really get into it. We're intense. We're screaming at the TV. But when we come to church to worship, we're blasé. Our mouths remain shut. We're apathetic. Our minds wander. We're nonchalant. We get distracted. What gives? We're insulting God with our leftovers. That's what we're doing. God requires our first fruits, the very first of the harvest, the pick of the litter. We need to save the best for God. Are we giving God a respectable sacrifice? Verse 10 reveals the second way the priests defiled God's altar. God was upset over why they came. Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. These were the people who were going to church, but they were coming in vain. They didn't mean it. And God says, why don't you shut the doors? I have no pleasure in this kind of worship. There are two possible interpretations for the phrase in vain. First, it could refer to a lack of spiritual sensitivity. In other words, they had forgotten the meaning behind their sacrifice. That it was now just a hollow, vain, empty ritual. The priests were just going through the motions and everyone knew it. And no one had guts enough to close the temple doors. As far as God was concerned, they could have extinguished the fire on the sacrificial altar until the fire was flaming again in their hearts. Hang on, I'm telling you, if Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain ever gets to the point where we're just playing religion, when we lose sight of our goal, I hope someone has the guts to shut the doors. Hope someone can say, enough is enough. God would rather our praise be silent than insincere. But the second possible translation for the phrase in vain is with gratis or for pay. These priests wanted to be paid to open the doors of the temple. No one worshiped God anymore on a volunteer basis. Everyone wanted to get compensated with cash. If the priests are going to offer the sacrifice, where's my money? Where's my tax? I want to be paid for this, for serving the Lord. And this happens in churches today. It becomes easier to just pay people to do things. Custodians or musicians get paid instead of people coming forward who willingly, voluntarily, out of their heart, want to serve the Lord. And as a result, there are contemporary churches full of professionals who view the ministry as just a job. They're all performance and no passion. I love the word amateur. It's a French word. It means for the love of it. Even though the church supports me financially, I want to always be an amateur. I want to serve the Lord because I love Him, not because I'm drawing a salary. Years ago, Russell Hitt of Eternity Magazine, he interviewed Henrietta Mears. Henrietta loved the Lord deeply. She loved kids too. She found on gospel light Sunday school curriculum. Later, Hitt reflected on his interview. He said, she began to reminisce about the wonderful things God had done in her life. She talked of the Lord Jesus as simply and genuinely as a new convert possessed by first love. The tears flowed down her cheeks. It was thrilling to be with a Christian worker that had not become a pro. 
I hope they'll say that about me. I hope that's the impression people come away with after they've been in my presence. Verse 11 says, For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place incense shall be offered to my name in a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. In their backsliding, the Jews had forgotten the greatness of God. They had become narrow and provincial and myopic. They had lost sight of the scope of God's reputation, the breadth of God's admirers. They would forgotten that there was a world outside, their tiny boundaries that adored the Lord that they had taken for granted. Malachi reminds the Jews that wherever the sun shines on this planet, it falls on believers who are greeting a new day in praise to God. From the rising of the sun, even to the going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, God tells us. But you profane it in that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled and its fruit, its food is contemptible. Here's the third way they defiled the altar of the Lord. They defiled it in the way they behaved at the altar. They obligated themselves to serve the Lord. And then they despised having to do so. They hated every minute of their service. They viewed it as laborious and dull. You also say, oh, what a weariness. And you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? I mean, here's the tragedy. The Jews viewed the things of God as a bore. Service to God had become a chore. Their sacrifices had become drudgery and a burden. They were tired of serving the Lord. They were burned out. They called it a weariness. D.L. Moody once said, I get tired in the work, but I never get tired of the work. I like that. To the contrary, though, these Jews served God, but they griped and complained the whole time they did so. They'd forgotten that it is an honor for any of us to serve our God. Have you ever heard yourself say, Oh no, another son. I gotta go to church. Have you ever heard yourself think, why in the world did they schedule a men's breakfast on the same Saturday? Georgia has a home game. Weren't they thinking at that church? Man, I hate cutting this check. You ever thought that? Yeah, I'm a Christian. I gotta do it, but I don't like it. Well, If you can't do it without complaining or grumbling, then just don't do it. Don't do it. If you copped an attitude, you probably are not having a very good impact anyway, and you're certainly not going to get a reward for what you're doing. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7 tells us, God loves a cheerful giver. Literally, a hilarious giver. If you can't do it with joy in your heart and a smile on your face and praise on your lips, then don't do it. God doesn't need it. You need to give it. His work is not dependent on us. If it's not our pleasure to serve the Lord, then we we shouldn't do it. God doesn't want His altar to be defiled by what we give or why we give 
or even the way we give. Once a family went to church, after they'd come home, they were sitting around the table eating lunch. The teenage son remarked, man, that was such a boring sermon today. The sister chimed in, yeah, I can't believe how that pastor stumbled over the scriptures like he did. The mom added, well, I guess you're right, kids. It wasn't as inspiring as usual. Finally, the dad said, hush, quit your complaining. What'd you expect for five bucks? If you, if you don't put something into your relationship with God, you're probably not going to get a whole lot out of it. If you're giving God your leftovers, it's probably not going to be very meaningful to you. Verse 14 closes the chapter. But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. Cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices what is blemished. He had something good. He had something right. He had the good, the good lamb, but instead he held it back and he gave a blemish sacrifice. Cursed be that man. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. And he is a great king. Malachi closes with the antidote for hypocrisy and for pseudo-spirituality. He mentions it twice here in chapter 1, once in verse 14 and then here again, once in verse 11 and here again in verse 14. The remedy for hypocrisy is the fear of the Lord. Do you fear the Lord? If so, you won't be trivial when you approach him. Verse 14 points ultimately to the day when the Gentiles will fear the name of the Lord. Messiah will return, a great king, and establish his kingdom. He'll rule the nations with a rod of iron. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We don't see the Lord in this way at this time. His glory, His greatness are not always visible to us. But when we look to the future, the gravity of God becomes clear. When we see God for who He is, we realize that He's not someone to treat casually or flippantly. He's not just my buddy. He's not just the main man. He's not just my guy upstairs. He is a holy God, immortal, invisible, incomprehensible. Elohim is His name, as the Hebrews called Him. The God of creation, the all-powerful one. He is El Shaddai. The God Almighty. He is El Elyon, the God Most High. He is El Olam, the God Everlasting. He is El Roy, the God who sees all things. These are just a few of His many and glorious names. We speak a lot of the glory of God, but few of us really know what that word means. The, term, the Hebrew term glory means heaviness. It means weightiness. God's glory is His intensity, it's His heaviness, it's his, the presence that He brings to our lives and to situations. God said to Moses, no man can see my face and live. Our corrupt bodies melt in His presence, in His heat, in His heaviness. 
In essence, God isn't someone you can put on hold when He calls. God isn't someone with whom you can cancel the appointment. You don't tell God no. You don't say to God, I can't. You don't make excuses or snub Him or ignore a holy God. You fear a holy God. He's not someone you trifle with. One day, God will judge all men. Even we Christians will stand at the judgment seat of Christ. There'll be no glib attitudes then. The answer to hypocrisy is the fear of the Lord. It's to give Him the respect that He deserves. Leonard Wood went to visit the King of France. The king enjoyed Leonard's company and invited him back the next day. When Wood arrived, the king was surprised to see him. The king said, I didn't think you would come. Wood replied, why? Was I not invited? The king answered, yes, but you didn't respond to the invitation. Leonard Wood replied, a king's invitation is never to be answered, but to be obeyed. Is that the kind of respect and reverence you and I have toward God? Do we wait on His beck and call? Is His wish our command? Do we fear the Lord? 